Good morning. I add my voice to those who have said Happy Father's Day. I don't think we realize the difference that we can make in the lives of children as fathers. Another group, of course, that makes a huge difference in the lives of children are teachers. And so I also want to echo that request to, to step up and, and help invest your time in the lives of some of these kids because I just think of my own upbringing and some of the teachers that made a huge difference. I would not be here today if it weren't for some of my Sunday school teachers and others who said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and try this and they invested in, in my life, and I knew that they loved me and cared for me, and it made a huge difference. And so we have that opportunity. It's really a privilege to do that. Several years ago, I was uh, staying at a friend's cabin that's located on a mountain that overlooks uh, a, a beautiful river. It's a, just a wonderful piece of property. And I went for a walk one day. I was a long distance away from the cabin when I noticed a, a little bit of a hole in the side of the hill some of you have heard me share this before, how I've always wanted to be the person to find a cave. I wanted to be the one who found a cave that no one else had found before, and, and that's kind of what this looked like. And so I walked over to it, and it, was, it, was, it had uh, some weeds there and small trees, but I, I looked at this hole, and it was just big enough for someone my size to crawl through. I pulled out my phone. I shone it inside, and there was indeed a cavern there. And I was so excited. And so I looked for bears, I looked for bats, looked for spiders. And then I squeezed myself into this hole and found myself standing in a cavern. It was about 10 feet wide, but about 30 feet deep. It kept going. The roof was about six feet tall, but it got more narrow as it went down. And, and I began to explore using my phone. And I realized it's just way too dark in there using a phone. So I went back up to the cabin, got a really strong flashlight, and I went back. And I walked all the way to the back of that and was very surprised to discover that when I was about 30 feet back, and when the roof was pretty close to maybe three feet from the ground, it dropped straight down, five feet. And I saw water down there, and there was a ledge down there, and so I jumped down. I began to look back into the cave there. I said, this is, I mean, this is really fun. But then I got a little scared, like a little freaked out. And so I jumped back up again. I thought, well, I've done my exploring for the time being. I figured I'd come back. But I wanted to, I wanted to look around. I wanted to, to find the story of the cave. I was looking for clues. Had, had people lived here before? Was there some writing on the walls? Was there pottery? Something like that. I, just was, I was just so excited about it. And then I noticed some, some big um, like tree trunks in, in the corner there. And I walked over to them and looked more carefully. And I realized those aren't tree trunks. Those were char-coated posts and things that are used in a... And then I, it hit me. It's a mine. I wasn't in a cave at all, I was in a mine. I put all the pieces together, I realized I'm in, I'm in a mine. Now, when I first shared this story, someone came up to me afterward and said, you're lucky to be alive. Because <laughs> some of these mines have some pretty dangerous gases in them, you know, that you can't even smell. That's why you're supposed to bring a canary with you. I just didn't have mine with me. But I knew I'd solved the problem. I, I knew I'd solved the riddle. I had put together the clues, and I realized that I knew exactly what this was now. I was disappointed, but at least I knew. 
I think when people sometimes uh, look at the story of the Bible, they, do, they, they pick bits and pieces, little bits and stories and verses here and there, but they don't understand the bigger story. They don't see the clues that are all around that tie this book together to one main idea, one main theme. Though the Bible has 66 different books, it's actually one book from the beginning to the end. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, how this, this book was written by about 40 different people over a period of 1,600 years. They were people that lived on different continents. They were from different socioeconomic backgrounds. And yet the book is one book. It's part of the reason I'm convinced the Bible's the word of God. You just could not craft such a thing. I'd have trouble writing a book with my twin brother and ending up agreeing with them, and yet as I look at the Bible, the, the God of Genesis is the same God of, of Revelation, the end of the book, and it's all tied together. But more than that, I think there's one theme. Today we're gonna continue our series titled The Story of Us. Bible records 4,000 years of human history, how God was involved with humanity. It's God's story, but it's also our story, but I'm suggesting here today, actually, there's just one story, there's just one theme that ties it all together, and that theme is actually a person. It's Jesus. In Ephesians chapter one, in verse 10, Paul wrote these words in the New Living Translation. He said, and this is the plan at the right time, God will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. One day, everything's gonna be brought together under this one individual. This is the plan. Now, the first week of the series, we talked about the fact that there was a purpose for creating humanity. It was to have a relationship with God. I'm convinced of that, that we were created different than the rest of God's creation. We were created to be like God so that we could know him. I hope you realize God wants a relationship with you. And that's our purpose for being created. And then last week, Kevin talked about the fact that a problem came into the world and kind of ruined everything. Sin entered the world and it just, it just put like a curse on everything that God had created. And someone might read that story of Adam and Eve when they disobeyed God and when sin came into the world and you begin to read this story, you might conclude that this caught God by surprise. Like, I didn't expect to see that happening, but I would suggest God knew all along that this was gonna happen. He knew that if he created people and he gave them, them the ability to say yes or no to him, to obey him or to disobey him, they would eventually disobey him. He knew that that would happen, and before any of that happened, he came up with a plan, which is what I wanna talk about here today. He made a promise to us that one day things are gonna be fixed, the things that went wrong in the garden. And today I wanna to begin to unfold that plan, but it was, it was it, God saw it all ahead of time. I've never been a, a good uh, chess player, I'm average but I understand that really good chess players can see several moves ahead. 
they kind of know what they're going to do. They know what the, they're going to do. They know what they're going to do. I mean, they just, they watch. They, they realize what's going to happen. Some good chess players have the beginning from the end all sorted out. And I'm suggesting here that God knew all along that they were going to disobey him. And he had already had a plan even before he created anyone or anything. The plan was Jesus Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 20. He says, For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your forefathers. Let me stop for a moment, but the word redeemed means to pay a price to secure the release from bondage of some kind. It's to pay a price to secure the release from bondage. Peter says, You know you were redeemed, a price was paid to secure your release from this sinful existence that we all have. And that price, he goes on to say, was not perishable, something perishable like silver or gold. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the foundation of the world. Before God even created anyone or anything, he, Jesus was already selected and he volunteered. This is going to be the plan. I'm going to create people with the ability to choose for or against me. By the way, evil is it's not God's fault. Some people have suggested if God created everything, he created evil. No, God created the potential for evil when he gave people the ability to choose. But he knew how they'd choose. And he came up with a plan. Dr. Wearsby puts it this way, Peter made it clear that Christ's death was an appointment, not an accident, for it was ordained by God before the foundation of the world. Now this fact, that God was gonna send his son to be the savior of the world and to fix everything, this fact ties together the entire Bible in some very remarkable ways. And the first evidence of the unfolding of the plan happens in the Garden of Eden, which is what Kevin talked about last week, where we begin to see the institution of the sacrificial system. You see, if you read your Old Testament, one of the, the gruesome practices in the Old Testament is this sacrificial system. It's, it's all the way through the, the Bible, not just in the Old Testament. Even when you get to Revelation, you read about a lamb that was slain. This, this idea, this, this fact that animals would shed their blood is, is one of the themes that ties together the entire Bible. And some of you maybe have never thought for a moment, why? I remember I was sitting by a rabbi once years ago on my way to Egypt. I'm sorry, well, I was going to Egypt too, but I was in, I was in Israel, heading to Israel, and I had rabbis on both sides of me. It almost was a joke, because I'm a pastor. All I needed was a priest. <laughs> but I said, I said to one of the rabbis next to me, I said, um, why did your God in your scriptures require sacrifice? And he said, well, it's, um, it's, it's how we receive forgiveness of sin. And I said, yeah, but what about it does that? Why kill animals? It seems to me just to speck both cruel and maybe sadistic. Slit the throat of the animals. Kill the innocent animals. They didn't do anything wrong. It doesn't even seem fair. Why? 
The rabbi couldn't answer the question. I went on further to say, well, if it's for the forgiveness of sins, where's your sacrifice? He said, well, we now light candles. He said, that's not the same thing. He didn't understand that this was part of this plan that tied together. I then told him what I thought after getting permission. I was going to shove it down his throat, but I, I pointed to the fact that that Jesus was gonna come, that he was the Lamb of God. And this ties together the Old Testament and this is where you begin to see that God had a plan. And we see this almost immediately in the Old Testament. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, you remember that they became ashamed and they hid from God. They, it's like it's shame entered the world with their sin. Suddenly God was looking for them, where are you? I mean, he knew where they were, but he, where are you? And, and, and they, they became aware of the fact they had no clothes on. It, it, I, I, well, it would have been a funny moment. It's like, honey, you're missing. I mean, it's as they tied together these fig leaves and covered themselves up, you know? Like, I gotta hide. I gotta hide from you. You're the only two people on the planet. You gotta hide from each other, you know? Don't want them to see me. That's what sin does. It brings shame. But in Genesis 3.21, we begin to see the unfolding of God's plan. We read, the Lord God made clothing out of the skins, out of skins for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. He covered their shame. This is what Jesus does for us, by the way, when we put our trust in him. We don't just experience forgiveness of sin, he covers the shame. But, but here's the question. How did he do that? How did he cover them with the skins of animals? What happened? Well, to me, it's obvious. He killed God, shed blood. He shed the blood of some innocent animals so that Adam and Eve, their shame could be covered at the expense of this, these animals over here. A couple animals had to die. Now, I would argue that that was the beginning of the sacrificial system where an animal would need to die. And I say that because in the very next chapter, we find the family of Adam and Eve in the practice of sacrificing animals. And so we pick up the story in Genesis chapter four. Adam and Eve had a, had a couple boys. Cain was someone who worked the fields and Abel was someone who works the, worked the flocks. And they brought their animals as an offering, a sacrifice to God. We begin in verse two of Genesis chapter four. Now Abel became a shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground in the course of time. Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. Firstborn, fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his sacrifice, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious and he looked despondent. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you furious and why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? Won't you be forgiven? Won't I accept your sacrifice if you do what's right in regard to this sacrifice? Of course, that's not what he did. God went on to say in verse seven, if you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you don't do what's right, sin is crouching at the door. It's a picture of a wild animal getting ready to pounce. 
Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. This happens immediately after Adam and Eve were clothed with the skins. You find these two offering sacrifices. And both brought the fruit of their labor, the work of their labor. The one, you know, he works in a garden or whatever he was doing there, and he brought the fruit. The other one brought lambs. It just seems right. I mean, why not each of you bring, sacrifice something to God that has to do with your work? But it's real clear that God didn't accept Cain, nor his sacrifice. Why? I believe Cain is a picture of all people who try to come to God on their terms and not God's. He's a picture of all kinds of people who think that that they could somehow earn their way to heaven through their work, their effort. No, the, the requirement was the shedding of blood. God had told Adam and Eve that all the way back in the beginning. Do you remember when Adam and Eve, before they even ate from the tree, God said, the day you eat, you'll die. That's the penalty of sin. A death is required. And then when you find this sacrificial system started and they're clothed with the animal skins, you realize, yes, a death took place. It's not fair to the animal, of course. It wasn't fair to the animal. That the ones offering the sacrifice walk away free while the animal dies. But we know as we look at the rest of the New Testament that it's impossible for the blood of animals to forgive sin anyway. They're of a different kind. They weren't created in the image of God. The shedding of the blood of animals can't forgive sin. No, it was always meant to point to God's plan. God had a plan. He was looking forward to the day when his own son would be our sacrifice on our behalf, the shed blood of Christ. And so you don't come to God however you want. God has a right to determine how we approach him. And the justice of God required a payment be made. The penalty for sin is death. There has to be a death. There has to be a shedding of blood. And Cain refused to come on that basis. And so he was not accepted. If you offer the right sacrifice, won't you be accepted? Yes, you will, but he didn't. Wanted to come to God on his terms. But we fast forward our story 2,500 years. It's now 1500 BC. A man named Moses is leading the Israelites out of Egypt. When they had first entered the country of Egypt, there was a group of about 70 of them. Literally, I think 74 people lived in Egypt initially, but they lived there for over 400 years, and God raised up Moses to lead them out. By this point, they had grown to a size of about two million. And Moses led them out to this mountain that we call Mount Sinai, and the people stood around the mountain, and God's very holy presence was reflected on that mountain as a, like a mountain that was on fire and smoke ascended. It scared the people to death. This is our God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. And then God said something that confirms everything about this whole, the story of us. That he wants, it's about a relationship. God told the people there, as they gathered around the mountain, I want to be your God, and I want you to be my people. That's the heart of God. That's what God has always wanted. I, I want to be your God. I want you to be my people. 
I created you to have a relationship with, with me. And the people said, we want that too. And then we read what happened next because God was making an agreement with them, a, a covenant. Let's seal the deal in writing here that I'll be your God, you'll be my people. Let's, let's write it down, let's make an agreement. But there was a little bit more to the agreement. There was a thing called a sacrifice to seal the deal. In Exodus 24, 5, then he, Moses, sent out young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed bowls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half the blood and set it in basins and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. He then took the covenant scroll and read it aloud to the people. They responded, we will do and obey everything the Lord has commanded. Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you concerning these words. This is the blood of the agreement. I'm convinced that this shedding of the blood, it's the, it's the, the blood that forgave Adam and Eve. It was the blood that took care of Abel's sin. And now God was saying, I will receive you as my people on the basis of the shed blood, a covenant. But once again, it was not an end in itself. It was meant to point to a person. God's plan was always a person. And so we move one more time, 1,500 years, a baby's born, really born in 3 BC. But 33 years later, we find this, this baby is a man. He's performing miracles like no one had ever done before, and he was teaching the people like no one had ever done before, and he claimed to be the Son of God and the Messiah and everything else, and he's eating a meal with his closest friends, his disciples, that night, he's going to be arrested. That night, he's going to be nailed to a cross. It's this Jesus who, when he began his public ministry, the prophet John the Baptist saw him and said, behold, that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's, that's the one. And Jesus, when he was with his disciples in Matthew 26, 26, it says, as they were reading or eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood that establishes the covenant. It is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. He's quoting from the Old Testament. It's my blood. They were sprinkled with the blood of animals, but drink this because this is my blood. They didn't realize, of course, he was about to shed his blood on a cross there. But all of it was meant to point to Jesus, and all of the Bible points to Jesus. From Genesis to Revelation, you get to Revelation, you read a description of Jesus it says he's described as like a lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. He's also depicted there, by the way, as a lion and as a king because all of history is gonna revolve around this one. Jesus ties it all together. This is the theme, the story. So all the way through the pages of the Bible, what do we do with it here today? Well, it depends where you are spiritually. Some of you here today who have already put your trust in Christ, you're a Christian, 
You came to a point where you acknowledged your sinful condition, you reached out to Jesus, and you know where you stand with God. I, I want to talk about these things because I wanted to confirm your faith. I wanted to make you stronger in your conviction that the Bible is indeed the word of God, that, that it is, you just couldn't craft this thing through 40 different authors and arrive at the same conclusion, one theme, one person, all of history revolving around him, it should produce a greater confidence. And as you're reading your Bible, I encourage you to look for the clues. They are everywhere. Which I wanna look at some more next week. And finally, I encourage you to live for Christ because Christ died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him. Part of what serving is about, by the way, is about serving Christ. Realizing that there's more to this life than this life. Others of you here today maybe are just understanding for the first time what God's plan was. Some of you have thought in your mind that you can come to God on your terms. You think, I'm good enough, like God will accept me, I'll come as I am. There's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. God sent his son to be our savior for that reason, so that we could have eternal life through him. He died, he was buried, he rose again from the dead. He was the sinless one, taking upon himself the sin of the world, the one chosen before the foundation of the world. He was the lamb that Adam and Eve sacrificed. He was the lamb that Abel sacrificed. He was the lamb that died in the Old Testament so that the people of Israel could become God's people. He was Jesus who shed his blood and made a covenant or a promise in his blood. And that promise is this, that whoever come to God, comes to God on the basis of the shedding of the blood of his son will receive the gift of eternal life for God so loved the world. He gave his only son, whoever believes in him, will not perish, will not suffer eternal ruin, but instead will have eternal life. So have you come to Jesus? That's, that's the question for you today. If, if you don't know where you stand with God, to realize, I know I've sinned, you can't fix it. Most people, in the form of a prayer, they just say, I've sinned against you, I know it. I need a savior, and today I wanna to put my trust in Jesus as the solution to, to the problem. I encourage you to do that before you leave, even this morning. I'm gonna close in prayer here. Before I do, I wanna mention at the end of the service, we have people sometimes standing up here and they could answer questions you may have or they could pray with you about anything that might be on your heart. Let's pray. Father, I think of your plan, it's remarkable. I think of so many songs that are written in the Christian world about Jesus dying and, and the question could be raised, why all these songs about the same thing and yet there's nothing more important, no theme more significant. Thank you for sending Jesus for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.